I forgot to take the tricks. Tricks are for kids. Silly rabbit. Tricks are for kids. Hey. Hello. I'd uh, like to ask a few questions about this breakfast cereal. Uh, yeah. Yeah, box of tricks. That's right. I've been led to understand that tricks are exclusively for children. Is that correct? Well, I, I mean, they say uh, tricks are for kids in the commercials. Uh-huh, but... uh-huh. And is that enforced by law? Uh, not to my knowledge, no. So if I purchase these tricks, there'll be no trouble? No, no, you, you, sh you should be fine. You do understand that I myself am not a child. I, I was able to sniff that out, yeah. Okay, I'm going to bring these back to my apartment. Uh, yeah, yeah, you'll, you'll be okay. And uh, I won't be followed. Uh, no, that's, that's not in our budget here. And now a word from our sponsors. Look around you and imagine for a second that we lived in a world and a culture where labels simply said what was inside the container where there was only one approved choice in every category, where there were no billboards, no pop-ups, no pop-unders, no spam, no interruptions, no salespeople, no TV ads, no magazine ads, no jingles, no radio ads. And in fact, the only way you ever found out about anything was if you heard about it from someone you knew and trusted. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second, ironically enough, after this message from our sponsor. Hey, it's Seth. And this is a podcast. It's a podcast produced by Alex De Palma. Alex is a bit of a podcast whisperer. Alex and I are inviting you to join us in the podcasting workshop. And this is Alex De Palma, Seth's co-teacher and producer. In this class, you'll learn not just the technology to make a podcast, because honestly, it's pretty easy. You'll learn to find your voice. You'll learn to find the others. And together in this proven workshop that's back again, you'll discover that you can make a podcast. Not to make money, because unfortunately, you probably won't. But to make a difference, to be heard, and to find the people who want to hear from you, which is even more important. I hope you'll check it out. Visit akimbo.com slash go for all the upcoming workshops. Go make a ruckus. I got this question the other day about my take on advertising. My question today uh, is about ads and advertising. And I know you've talked a lot in the past about almost the rudeness of interrupting people while they're listening to content to deliver them an ad. And... I can't help but notice that you have your own ads and have had ads for other people uh, and companies in the past on Akimbo. And this isn't something that bothers me. Uh, I'm just curious about how you think about that when you are inserting ads into your own content. I don't think that your audience probably minds, as I think most of us are probably highly interested in uh, the Akimbo workshops or, or other companies that uh, you promote. But I'm just curious about how you think about uh, that decision to include ads in your content uh, when you've had some kind of differing opinions about them elsewhere. Uh, thanks for everything you do. Big fan of your work. See ya. And I thought it was worth turning it into an entire episode because I'm not against advertising. Advertising, in fact, 
has contributed an enormous amount to my well-being, to the culture around us, to my narrative of how I encounter the world. Advertising is the unsung contributor to the last 150 years of the rise of Western culture. Without advertising, our world feels sort of Orwellian. Not Orwellian in the sense of the government runs everything, but Orwellian in the sense that it's gray and drab and generic. In order to understand the impact of advertising and why it has so completely jumped the shark and become a negative force for many people, I want to examine four elements of it. But first, I want to start with the following. For 50 years, maybe more, advertising was an incredible bargain. It was dramatically underpriced. Why would it be underpriced? Well, the reason is that the media companies that sold it were nervous. They were nervous because they had a great deal. They were getting paid a whole bunch of money to run ads, enough that they were making plenty of profit. But they were worried that if they raised their rates too much so that it was fairly priced, so that it was appropriate to the value that the people who were buying the ads were getting, that people would switch to other media sources and the gig would be up. And so the logic of the 1940s through the 90s was pretty simple. Buy them all. Buy all the ads you can, TV ads in particular. TV ads built giant corporations. TV ads changed the culture. TV ads got us to stop killing each other because we all lived in a world where we were all watching the same TV ads. And along the way of running all those ads, the people who ran the ads, who were probably very good intuitive storytellers but weren't particularly good at analyzing what they were doing, came across four rules of thumb. These four rules of thumb interplayed with one another. Some were adopted more than others. Here we go. The first one is that advertising could be more targeted. I don't think it's right for kids to grow up thinking these things, that just mom does everything. If you wanted to sell Tide laundry detergent, the sexist thinking went, you should advertise it in the afternoon on soap operas because it's women who decide which soap to buy, and that's how you reach housewives, a term pretty much invented by people who ran ads. Number two is measured. Now, for a really long time, advertisers pretended to measure their ads, but they didn't really want to. Back when I was pioneering email marketing in the 1990s, we would go on sales calls and the people we were pitching to would say, well, yeah, but how do you measure that? And I'd say, well, how do you measure your TV ads? And they would look at me sort of funny because they didn't want anyone to know that they didn't really measure their TV ads. When I was at Yahoo in 1999, the homepage, the center of the internet, was sold out. It was sold out for months in advance. And if you ran a banner ad on that homepage, you got an entire report of click-through rates. And almost everyone who ran that ad never opened the report. Because these were people who were experimenting, coming over with TV-sized money to try out this new internet thing. And they didn't want to know whether people clicked or not, because if they knew, they'd know they weren't doing that well, because there were the numbers, and they'd have to tell their boss, no, it was better to not measure. And most of the people who bought TV ads were buying TV ads because their boss before them had bought TV ads. 
and you weren't going to go to your boss and say, you were an idiot in the old days for not measuring. I'm walking away from TV ads. It was more fun and more lucrative to not measure. But measurement, people had a hunch that measurement mattered. The third thing, after targeted and measured, was frequent. It seems to rub a lot of marketers the wrong way that they have to say what they have to say more than once. They said it. Isn't that sufficient? But what we know is that frequency works. Running the same ad more than once pays off. It scales. And the fourth one was blur. Now it says that I'm supposed to have a tray with soup and... Oh, bless your sweetheart. Oh, you handsome man, you. This is supposed to be a slim, graceful vase of flowers. <laughs> it looks pretty short and fat and dumpy. But anyhow, you get the idea. Spring, April in Paris, May in the Bronx, <laughs> and a bowl of soup and you. All the way back to the days of Arthur Godfrey, advertisers figured out that the closer they could get to looking like an endorsement, the better the ad would work. That their goal was not for the ad to be separate from the content. And so the Reese's Corporation paying a bunch of money to be the candy of choice for E.T., the extraterrestrial. I don't think Steven Spielberg picked Reese's Pieces because he liked them better than M&M's. I think he picked them because someone paid him. And so in certain forms of media, there was a bright dividing line between what's an ad and what's not. The people at CBS News were insistent that it didn't matter who the sponsor was. In fact, being a sponsor probably made it more likely they were going to say something nasty about you just to prove that there was no blur. Okay, so what happens? What happens is along comes the internet. And when the internet shows up, it increases the number of ads each person sees per day by a factor of 100. That instead of seeing five or six TV commercials in half an hour of TV, you might see 500 messages if you surfed the web for half an hour. But then Bill Gross figured something out, and Google ran with it. And what it was was an auction. That instead of the upfronts, instead of conservative media companies just selling the ads and saying enough is enough, Google figured out how to take it all. Take it all by auctioning it off. 30 seconds from now, we're going to show an ad to some people who look for a certain keyword. Who wants to bid the most? Can you see how all four of these things come together at once? Targeted, measured, frequent, and the blur all come together on the internet at once. And the auction? The auction solves the problem that media companies had of it's all too cheap. Because if you are measuring and you discover that a click to your site is worth a dollar, and there are lots of ways to discover that if you use direct marketing math, you, if you're a rational actor, should be willing to pay 99 cents for it. In fact, it's not completely irrational to pay a dollar and a penny just to keep your competitor from getting that click. Well, if you're paying Google 99 cents, that means 
that they're the ultimate landlord because of that dollar of profit, that dollar of profit that shows up because you worked so hard, took so many risks, built something of value. Of that dollar, Google gets 99 cents. And you, you make a penny. Repeat that a billion times a day or more. And now you understand the engine that propelled Google to become the powerful monopoly that it is. Facebook looked at this and said, wow, we can create a ton of new inventory because instead of organizing the world's information, we can organize the world's people. And so there's all this inventory. Let's auction it off. But in my experience anyway, Facebook cheats. Their auction is fake. You buy $1,000 worth of ads, and if they're working and you go to buy $3,000 more, suddenly the price per click goes through the roof because somebody figured out that goosing the algorithm is as good as having a fair auction, maybe even better. Continuing on my rant. So now what we see is that you can target that the internet is micro-media. It's micro-media because there is no homepage of Yahoo anymore. It's micro-media because you cannot effectively reach 40 or 80 million people with one ad the way you could as a matter of course just 30 years ago. It's measured because it's digital, because the reports are there, because you can find out to the nanosecond exactly what's happening. In fact, most of the privacy violations that are going on are going on because of the insatiable desire that marketers have developed to know the math. So you, my alert listener, is probably ahead of me in a few areas, but here we go. First of all, if you're not Google and you're not Facebook, but you have a little media company on the internet, you're an Instagram influencer, you're trying to build a following for your blog and run ads on it, you're even one of those smaller media companies, you've got a big problem. You've got a bunch of big problems. The first one is this. Marketers are racing to the bottom. If the auction is going on and it is not controlled by a central authority, their algorithm is going to do everything it can to pay as little as possible. And if you don't have an ad for that person who's visiting your site tomorrow or two minutes from now or right this second, it goes unsold. And so, because they have choices, there's an advantage for them. And the race to the bottom continues. Well, one way around it is to do the blur, to sell out. And so we have countless pages on Facebook that appear to be by real people, but are instead nothing but shilling for a company or a political actor. And we have people who claim to be influencers who are pitching stuff that they're getting paid to pitch. The next problem is what happens with podcasts, because podcasts don't have a lot of data. That for a really long time, thanks to RSS, there was a disconnect between the person making the podcast and the audience in the sense that it wasn't a direct connection. You subscribed in your RSS reader, but that didn't provide a lot to the podcaster about who you were and what you did. And advertisers, given the choice, wanted to know. So when I set out to build the Akimbo podcast, I was open and excited to have ads, A, because I like ads, B, because I want to be able to compensate the people I'm working with, and C, because real media products often have real ads. But I made a whole bunch of rules. Those rules would prevent a race to the bottom. We had really standard pricing. We 
insisted on frequency showing up again and again. We didn't want to share any data about our listeners. And most of all, I refused to blur. I wouldn't read the ads because it's not my company. I am not sure what they make, and I didn't start that company. And so season after season, as I had control, I was picky about who could sponsor this podcast and who couldn't. And eventually it became clear that advertisers with a choice were ignoring the fact that context matters. They were ignoring the fact that you, my listeners, are a very special bunch listening with a special sort of attention, and they were just going for tonnage, back to the numbers, back for buying it in bulk, all the way for the media planner to hit the numbers. And so we reached a point where I made a decision. And the decision was, if it's that good, I should advertise on it myself. And that is why you will hear ads for the Akimbo workshops. Because who better to talk to these workshops about than the people I made them for? And who better to talk about them than me? The summary of my argument is this. Advertising, for at least 50 years, 1940 to 1990, was a peculiar institution. It had surplus, surplus all around. There was a limited number of people selling the advertising, and there was plenty of money to create magazines and television shows and radio that people were eager to listen to. At the same time, advertisers weren't paying as much as they had to, so they had enough profit that they could take their time, that they could build a brand for the ages, that they could try not to cut as many corners. And the internet has taken both of those things and turned them upside down. Now there's an infinite number of voices chasing a finite number of advertisers. And thanks to the auction system, the amount of money the advertiser makes from each ad is really small, particularly in the long run. Once an ad starts working, people copy it, and they copy that product as well. The end result is, in some ways, a race to the bottom, a race for clicks, a race for attention, a race for the providers of goods and services to cut corners, to figure out a way to go a little faster and be a little cheaper so they can keep playing the ad game. And yes, while it has increased dramatically by orders of magnitude, the number of voices and the number of choices, there are costs to the end of this era of advertising. And too often, people who want to make a thing online, a show, a podcast, a blog, end up being disappointed about the flow of revenue that they get when they try to sell the attention of their fans. So yeah, I'm blurring on purpose because I'm proud of it. But you are right that in the world of the internet, advertising has shifted probably forever. It is now hyper-targeted, micro-targeted. It is now delivered with obsessive frequency as it chases you around the web. And most of all, most debilitating to our culture is the blur is here and it's real. There was very little blur in the days of network TV, more in the days of cable TV. But now, you never really know. And as Fred Wilson says, no conflict, no interest. And there's something to be said about that. But it only makes sense if you know what it is, if you know who's behind it, if you know how they decided to say what they're saying. So, a long rant, a rant brought to you by our sponsor. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. 
when is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com slash go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate buttons. Two juicy questions this week. Here we go. Hey, Seth. Chris from Nashville, Tennessee here. Love your work. I really enjoy your interest in placebos. You've done a great job of documenting the upsides of the placebo effect. What do you make of the way that the placebo effect is employed by the cosmetics and wellness industries to profitably address the very illusory needs that their marketing sometimes is so good at creating in people, where before their marketing showed up, perhaps there wasn't a felt need? Love your work. Thanks, Seth. I need a little bit of a wind-up before I answer this, so I'm going to begin with two things. First of all, marketing works. Marketing has an enormous amount of leverage and power. Showing up in a way that takes people's attention, tells them a story that spreads, that changes our culture, it works. If it didn't work, those people who are spending their lives and billions of dollars on it are wasting their time. But they're not. We know that well-marketed things do better then poorly marketed things. And the second is my assertion that the job of our culture is not to enable capitalism, that capitalism is permitted to enable our culture. And so just because you're making money doing something doesn't mean you're doing a good thing. And I think a community, which is nothing but a bunch of people working together for a community, has an obligation to determine what's good, what's not, and to enable or disable capitalists from playing certain kinds of games. So, with all of that said, let me divide placebos, pharmaceuticals, nutraceuticals, supplements into three categories, positive, benign, and malignant. So, we'll start with positive. When a marketer shows up and helps people see that a clean water filter is better than drinking dirty water, which makes your family sick, that is positive. When a company like Freedom Mom shows up and offers goods and advertising that normalizes and encourages women to have honest conversations about living postpartum, about taking care of themselves, about doing it without shame, doing it with comfort, they're doing something that is positive. When we bring soap to the world and encourage people to wash their hands, we're doing something positive. There are lots of things that come from marketing in this space. And for the last 150 years, 
the world has gotten much, much cleaner and safer, largely as a result of a cycle of capitalism in which people are making money helping other people live a safer, cleaner, and healthier life. And then there are things that perhaps we could call neutral. These are placebos that are sold to people in the following way. A message goes out and add a story that makes you feel a little bit insecure, a little bit behind, a little bit nervous. Do you have halitosis, a made-up word for bad breath? Oh, well, this product, which isn't very expensive and has no side effects, will make that problem go away. And it's a hobby for a lot of people to have lustrous hair, to have shiny skin or whatever the opposite of shiny skin is, to look good and feel good. But the definition of look good is coming from the marketers themselves. Where this ends up being malignant is when shame is added to the equation, when there are side effects, when the placebos that are being sold are really expensive, when they are addictive, when they cause side effects that weren't promised. When all of those things happen, it's simply a taking. It's not a hobby. It's not a sport. It's not fun. It is not weaving together beauty and culture. No, it's simply a taking. It is a taking of trust. It is amplifying shame. It is causing things to spiral in the wrong direction. So you can think really hard about what it is you want to market and how you want to market it. I've got no problem at all if a company wants to sell a beverage by helping people believe they'll be more popular or have more fun than if they buy the alternative, the competitor. I think that's fairly benign. We live in a shiny marketplace filled with marketers, all of whom are offering us some sort of meaning by spending money. And that's deeply ingrained and it's not going away anytime soon. But as Peter Parker's uncle might have said, with that great power comes great responsibility. Thanks for this one. Hi, Seth. This is Wendy from Eureka Springs, Arkansas. And I'm thinking about your last episode on helmets, text, and seatbelt laws and your observation of the person at the bike shop who spoke first that had the power over if the couple wore the helmet or not. Yesterday, our governor lifted the mask mandate while the CDC still highly recommends wearing masks. And while I'm not looking to you for your opinion on masks, in the vein of people like us do things like this and the person who speaks first has the power I'm curious how you would approach business in a service industry caught between those who shun businesses that require masks and those who shun businesses that let patrons choose to wear a mask. I look forward to your answer. And as always, keep making a ruckus. 25 years ago, there was a school on the route between my home and the train station. And one time I was driving to the train station at 7.15 in the morning, 45 minutes before school opened, driving through the 15-mile-an-hour school zone at 30 miles an hour, and I got a ticket. And I went to the judge and I said, I don't deserve a ticket because school wasn't open. And the judge said, the school zone starts at 7. And I said, but I've never been in an accident and I'm a safe driver. And the judge said, we've agreed on the law 
and the school zone speed limit is 15 miles an hour. And so I paid the ticket, and I deserved to get the ticket. Because as a culture, as a community, I think we've all done the math and come to the conclusion that slowing down 15 miles an hour for a couple hours a day in exchange for not mowing down kids who might be running into the street is a fair trade. And the thing about a trade like that is everyone needs to do it. If you've got one person who says, I can drive any speed I want, it's my right, I'm not hurting anyone but me, and I've never been in an accident, then the whole system goes out the window because then everyone has to fend for themselves. Now, the thing about political conversations is this. The good kind of politics are when people who mean well, who want to make things better, disagree about the best way to accomplish something. And that opens the door for a conversation about the best way to accomplish something. But when we weaponize politics, when we make it about identity, when it's us against them, we've also stated we're not allowed to talk about it. We're not even allowed to talk about what we're talking about because to do so is to come too close to that thing of who are you? Are you with us or are you against us? And often in our culture in which belief and science keep bumping up against each other, we're not even sure what we're talking about when we're talking to each other. Are there theories and conjectures in mathematics that are not settled yet? Of course there are. Do mathematicians talk to each other about them? All the time. In fact, that's all mathematicians do, is have constructive conversations about the solutions to problems. When Ignaz Semmelweis figured out that if doctors washed their hands, women wouldn't die in childbirth, it ended up turning for 20 years into a sort of political third rail conversation. You weren't allowed to talk about Semmelweis's data because people were so busy talking about their identity instead. And so now your question, because as a culture, we have a challenge. There is no debate among epidemiologists that lives are saved when viruses don't spread, that the spread of viruses enables them to get from one person to another, and it has killed more than half a million people in my country alone. That is not up for debate. What is an interesting conversation to have is how much are we willing to pay in inconvenience, in a lack of freedom, in money, in a slower economy to keep a virus from spreading to more people. That is a useful conversation. There's a long history of regulations in the United States in which a number around $2 million is spent to avoid each death. For example, banning a certain chemical. Well, it might cost industry $100 million, but it's going to save 50 lives. That's how the math usually works out, around $2 million. Well, if you multiply $2 million times half a million people, it's a really big number. And now we can have a conversation. We can have a conversation of how inconvenient, expensive, or debilitating is it for people to wear masks in our community versus how many people aren't going to get sick, how many people aren't going to face long-term health consequences, how many people aren't going to die 
if we all wear a mask. That conversation needs to be held, just like we had a conversation about speed limits. Because speed limits, accepted by our culture in every country that I'm aware of, exist because all of us come out ahead. We come out ahead on pollution, we come out ahead on safety, we come out ahead on efficiency if we have speed limits. And so now we have to be together enough to have a conversation about whether or not walking into your business or any other business should require somebody to wear a mask. And the interesting thing about the mask conversation, which is fundamentally different than the motorcycle helmet conversation, is this. If you don't wear a motorcycle helmet, the person who's going to get killed is you. But if you don't wear a mask, the person you're endangering is someone else. And I think, like the speed limit in the school zone, that changes the bias of the conversation. It changes the metrics that we need to consider about who's paying the price and who's benefiting. And so, yes, these conversations need to be had. And the reason that it's so problematic, besides the enormous division that our country is going through, amplified, amplified, amplified by the media, is that we have to do it all over the place. Because the virus doesn't care if most of the time you're wearing a mask. It doesn't say, oh, well, they really did a good job. I'll ignore this moment. No, it's on duty all the time. And so, yes, I think you understand my answer, just like my answer regarding pharmaceuticals, which is we have an obligation to do something for all of us, for the culture. And if that means that some customers will choose not to buy from you, I think that's a spot you can proudly stand in, that I'm not going to run any live events for a long time to come because I don't want to be the person that encouraged a lot of people to get together in a room. And yes, running a business, feeding your family, that's your job. But at the same time, we live in community. And I think we all have to decide what are the rules for living in community? Because you don't have to live in community. You can go move to the woods of Wyoming. But for the rest of us, there is a price and a benefit from being together in community. And its purpose is not to enable the most people to make the most money. Its purpose is to create a culture where opportunity and possibility lead to a better tomorrow. That was a rant. Thanks for your question. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet, like we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. 
It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.